0: I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. If you like the kinds of things we talk about here on Soul Sister Conversations, then maybe you would enjoy being on my email list. I send out a weekly newsletter on Sunday evening with an inspirational and practical blog focused on leading well, personally and or professionally. I give a book recommendation and keep people up to date on who's on the podcast. Start your week off right. Go to Dana Lloyd Leadership and get inspiration delivered to your inbox. Do you want to be happier? Well, you've come to the right place. Today, I speak with Monique Rhodes, who is a happiness strategist. She has spent the last 25 years exploring this concept after suffering great unhappiness in her earlier life. In this episode, she shares what she has learned to create more happiness in her life than she ever could have imagined. Do you believe it is possible for you too? Yes, it is. Let's find out how to get happy. Welcome,
1: Monique Rhodes, to Soul Sister Conversations. It's wonderful to be here, Dana. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm happy that we could connect in this way because we have a very large time difference of 15 hours. So I appreciate you getting up early in the morning to accommodate this conversation because you're calling in from New Zealand. And um, I'm excited to learn from you today and share your wisdom uh, with the world. You are a happiness strategist who teaches students and corporations around the world how to master their lives and who doesn't need more of that. And if there's anything that I've come to know about people and their stories is that the reason why they're on their path is because they usually were living the opposite of it or they weren't on this path at one point and there's something that shifted them onto it. And they found out some secrets and it becomes their passion to share it with the world. And in your case, how to be happier. So I'm curious, where does your story begin?
1: I think Dana, that you're completely right. There's, I think that when the pain of the situation that you're in is bigger than the pain of changing, we change. And for me, I was I grew up in this beautiful country of New Zealand that I'm home at uh, for a little bit longer at the moment. But with anything that's wonderful, just like New Zealand is, there's, there's often a shadow side. And we have a, a problem in New Zealand with child abuse. And unfortunately, I'm one of those statistics. So I think probably by the time I was uh, in my early teens, I think it would be fair to say that I was more than likely depressed. I think any 10-year-old who's listening to Leonard Cohen is probably heading down a slightly depressive kind of mindset. And by the time I reached the age of 19, I was really, really struggling. And, you know, my emotions were out of control. Uh, I, I I just couldn't really cope. And I ended up in hospital having tried to take my own life. And I remember sitting in that hospital bed. I remember it really clearly. I remember thinking to myself, why is it that some people seem to be able to manage their lives easily? And I just don't seem to be able to. And I wanted to try and understand whether this idea of happiness was something that, you know, was based on the family you grew up in or your you know your the wealth of your family the opportunities you had or whether it was something that i was actually able to shift so i decided that i needed to um give myself the best chance i possibly could to try and understand what was going on and so i went on a journey for well it, i don't think that journey ever ends but i went on a journey all over the world uh, discovering different philosophies, different countries, different ways of looking at things to see whether I could find some tools that could help me or whether I just had to accept that life was gonna be hard for someone like me. And I'm thrilled to say that I did find a bunch of tools that helped me to completely transform my life to a place that I didn't actually even know was possible to be this well and to be this happy. And that's what I now teach to other people. So they don't have to go through all the years of discovery and experimentation that I did.
0: Mm. When you were lying in that hospital bed and you were thinking about this, which I think it's an amazing sort of awakening that you had at that age to think about that. um, How did you think you were going to find out? Did you have a plan or... Because you, you travel all over the world. is that Was that your intention is to, to travel? At, were you traveling at 19 then?
1: Yes, I just started traveling. i tell you what happened. I went, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I remember about a year later going um, to Thailand for the first time and I was with a close friend of mine and we were on this little canal boat going down these canals and I remember looking over in the distance and seeing a man who was sitting under four bamboo sticks and on the top was a tarpaulin. And beside him were a couple of belongings. And I looked at him and I could see that this was his home. And what struck me was the look of joy on this man's face. He looked like one of the happiest people I'd ever seen. And I was so confused. I'm, I was looking at him thinking, I don't get it. Like. How is this man so happy when he has so little? And that's what made me realize that perhaps the conditioning that we had in the West was some of the problem. This conditioning around needing to have more, needing to have power, um, you know, wealth, money, uh, you know, all, all of these things that we try to acquire. Here I was seeing a man who had the happiness I was looking for, and he appeared to have nothing. So it raised a really big question for me. What was this really all about? Did you ask him? Did you have conversations? No, I had no ability to be near him. But what it did lead me to do was to spend a lot of time in Asia, particularly in India. I rode uh, my motorbike through India for four years and looking at what was the difference between a third world country and a first world country where we could look at a third world country and see an incredible amount of poverty uh, and suffering on that level yet from that perspective looking at a first world country and possibly seeing that the psychological poverty was even more crippling than the physical poverty i was seeing in the third world countries
0: Mm. And what drew you to India? Because you knew there was going to be such contrast in terms of, um, you know, financial poverty. And you wanted to see that? Or was there something else that drew you there? Because I think that's incredibly brave to ride your motorcycle all over India for four years. And how old were
1: you at that point? Uh, This was about 10 years ago. So, um, yeah, it was the the main reason that I went was that I was uh, studying a lot of Buddhism. And I wanted to go and see some of the sites of... um, the life of the Buddha, one main particular site called Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha reached enlightenment. I'd been told that this place had an incredible energy, and I'm always very curious about places like this. So I decided that I wanted to go and see it. And I, and I went to India really, Dana, thinking I wasn't going to like it. I thought that there would be a lot about India that would be very confronting for someone like me. And it was such a weird thing. It was like the moment I got there... I almost felt like I could breathe properly. It was so strange. Like I feel like there's a real connection for me with India. I know it probably seems a little cliché, you know, India, but India is so extraordinary. It draws you in and it mirrors where you're at. So if you're um if you're kind of tight and you can't be spacious India will mirror that back at you. So it forces you to address yourself. It forces you to let go of concepts and ideas of the way that you think things should be. So I just loved India. and One of the things that I saw was that in a third world country like India, you don't have the ability to have the separation that you have in a first world country. In a first world country, we're separated by our ability to not have to Rely on each other in the way that you do in a third world country. So there's a lot more community in a country like India where people have to get on with each other in a different way because they have to help each other. Whereas in the West, we can wake up in our little box and we can drive our little box to our work box and we can drive our workbox home and we can go to supermarkets where we don't even need to speak to the cashier anymore. We can do so much online and have things delivered to us. And what I think that we're doing is we're finding ourselves in a mindset of deep separation that I don't think is healthy for our mental wellness.
0: No, I don't think it is. It's so funny because I just finished reading a few weeks ago Dan Butner's um, nine Lessons for Living a Longer Life." Like he studied um, uh, centarians and how do you live to a hundred. And one of the the lessons that really st- struck me was this idea of community that you're speaking about. People who who live long lives were with people, friends, sitting around having a chat, like. Daily or connecting with their family. And I think you're right, we tend to live in silos. And you're right, we can be in boxes, we can order what we want, and we don't have to talk to anybody. And I don't think we recognize the damage that that's actually causing psychologically.
1: There was an, a documentary that was done some years ago by two Australian guys, and they wanted to go on a mission to see if they could find the happiest community in the world and they found the community that they identified as the happiest community in the world and it was in a slum in mumbai and that made sense to me you know it wasn't that everybody had a whole bunch of the comforts that we think are going to bring us happiness instead there was that feeling of acceptance belonging and love which i believe drive our happinesses happiness levels much much higher than the physical comforts, which are just, they're fleeting, you know, like we we find something that we think, oh, this is going to make me feel better. And it does for a moment, it does, it might even do it for a few months. But it's not lasting. And so if we're looking for a lasting happiness, we actually have to look somewhere else for it rather than externally.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious. Once you start, once you started this journey of trying to find happiness and to figure it out, at what point in your journey did you feel like you were starting to get some clarity? Like, because it takes a long time. Once you, you're reading books and you're trying to accumulate all this information, I'm curious. Was there a turning point or a shift where it was like aha, or was it the guy on, with the under the bamboo sticks?
1: yeah there wasn't an aha moment but there was a moment probably about 10 years in where there was a little bit of a tipping point that happened dana i all i i used to think of myself a little bit like humpty dumpty like i was you know uh i was broken and i all i was hoping was to get myself back to a place that seemed the same place that everybody else was in which seemed kind of normal but what I found about 10 years in was that I was surpassing what I had imagined was possible, uh, in a kind of thriving life. So I started to recognize and realize that. And I was like, whoa, actually things are even better than I thought they were. And that's where, you know, these last 10, 15 years have been, have been opening that up and just going, wow, this, this idea of having an extraordinary life is actually really possible. And and like I said, now, now I have, you know, a level of consistent happiness and joy in my life that I actually didn't even know was possible. So it, it, would, have, it would have been 10 years and that I started to really see that I was making some serious progress.
0: Hmm. And what you have went through uh, child abuse that you referred to um, you know so many people have experienced and I'm curious how did learning about happiness, how did you frame that up so that that didn't continue to chase you a- and and destroy your happiness in your future uh, how, how did you move out out of that and and to stay
1: in the happy zone? Yes, it's a great question. I mean, I think one of the most important things for us to understand is that there's always a light and shadow to everything. And when I look at myself now, and I look at my life now, I know that my, my growth, my personal growth, my drive for personal growth, and all of the work that I do to help other people is actually driven by what happened to me when I was a child. So then the question becomes, you know, how do we qualify these things as good and bad when they have two sides to them? So it was really helpful for me to look at, you know, the, the situations that happened in my childhood that I frame them now, of course, as being incredibly painful and difficult. And there's, there's, there's no way that I can justify what happened. But I can also look at them as being my greatest teacher, they taught me compassion for others. They taught me an understanding of suffering. They taught me the skills uh, to never want to hurt another person consciously if I possibly can. They taught me how to be kinder, to love more. And if you ask me, well, you know, would you give all of that experience up and also give up where you're at now, I think it would be really hard for me to give Up where I am at now so I think that that's one piece of it and the other piece of it is to understand that you know the past is over it's finished we have to do the work I'm not saying that we just walk away and we shut ourselves down we have to do the work but it's also over so there's no point putting our past and sticking it in a backpack on our back and weighing ourselves down with it all the time if we really understand that the present moment is the only moment that truly exists, the past is merely a figment of our biased memory, and the future hasn't happened yet is only a figment of our imagination, then what we do is we understand that the present moment's the only moment that's real. And when we're in it, we have a choice about how we want to be. And that's how we can take charge of our life, despite whatever has happened to us in the past. Does that make sense, Dana?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for that. I mean, it's certainly a great perspective. And so many of those suffering, they bring us to our awakening, um, if we can see it in that way. Yeah. You say we were taught lies about where happiness come from. What is the lie?
1: Some years ago, I went to Las Vegas, which is not a place I would normally go. But I went because I wanted to see Lady Gaga doing a big band acoustic show that I'd been told was amazing. And I went and it was amazing. Here was this beautiful, wealthy, incredibly talented, extremely um, skilled and gifted performer and artist in front of me. She was getting paid $1 million a show. So she had everything that we are led to believe by our modern culture will lead us to happiness. Fame, wealth, um, power, you know, beauty, talent, all of it. And one of the things that struck me was when she got onto the stage partway during her show, she was so unhappy that she openly spoke about it. And I mm. think that this is the world that we live in where we're led to believe that happiness comes from these external things that we can acquire or buy but when we look at a lot of the people that have all of those things that we're led to believe will make us happy we can see that there's a pattern of alcohol abuse drug abuse suicide you know early deaths and we start to see actually this may not be true but we have a whole economy and a whole corporate structure that works around it You know, they need us to buy things to make this particular economy that we live in work, but actually happiness isn't found outside of ourselves. Happiness is actually found inside of ourselves. And it's the mind that's the ordering principle of whether we're happy or whether we suffer. And if we were able to be taught this from a young age, It would be a game changer because it would stop us from chasing all of these things that never really give us what we're looking for but unfortunately you know the world economy runs by it so if all of us were like maybe i don't need all these things anymore to be happy i think there'll be a lot of people unhappy that the world wasn't working quite the way they wanted it to
0: And you say we don't live in our homes or our clothes or even in our bodies. And we live in our minds, as you're saying. So mastering your mind is the most important skill you could learn. And it is the only way to elevate your levels of happiness permanently. So what role does our minds play?
1: I think of the mind like this, Dana, you know, our mind is like a room that is full of junk and we have all the doors and the windows open. We let all sorts of stuff into our mind and we never take care of our mind on a, on a real level. So if you were to be living in a room that was filled with junk and all the doors and windows were open and everything could just blow in, the rain, the storms, the wind, the dirt, it's not going to feel so good, is it? But we put so much of our energy and effort into looking after our bodies, looking after our home environments, you know, looking after all the things that we've acquired. But if we think about it, the place that we're actually living in is our mind. And when was the last time we cleaned out our mind? We don't, we just fill it with information. You know, about 99% of the information that we're consuming on a daily basis is of no benefit to us at all, but we just keep piling it on in. And we wonder why we're facing this epidemic of stress, anxiety, and depression. You know, pre-pandemic, the World Health Organization said that depression would be the number one health problem surpassing obesity by 2030. I'm sure that it's probably the number one health problem already. Because not only do we have information overload, but we also have distraction overload. It's very, very hard for us to stay focused when we have all these devices constantly dragging us in, into a place of distraction. So our minds are fragmented and agitated all of the time because we're, yeah, we're, we're overwhelmed by information and distractions. Mm.
0: I'm curious how you define happiness. When you say you're happy, you could not imagine this level of happiness that you experience. How do you define it or describe it?
1: Years ago, I was living in a a village in the south of India. And I remember being out in the ocean and the ocean there was really wild. And I remember this wave just hitting me and I came out of the ocean just like fully ripped up. And I I think that's how our minds are working most of the time. We get overwhelmed and overcome by thoughts and emotions that pound us. And sometimes the ocean of our mind is calm, but a lot of the time it's pretty rocky. And I see happiness is the ability to be able to learn how to surf those waves. Our thoughts and emotions are not something that we'll ever get rid of or would ever want to. But what we do is instead of drowning in them, instead of them controlling us, if we can learn how to surf them, how to be in charge of our own mind, then all of those things happen. You know, I still have difficult things that happen to me and I still have difficult emotions and thoughts, but I don't take them as seriously. Almost a little bit like, um, you know, they're a lot more like water off a duck's back. And that to me is where happiness lies because what we end up doing is getting sucked in and sucked under like that wave sucked me under in that village in India. And if we can learn how to actually work with our mind so that all of those things happen, but we're actually not being sucked in by them, but instead we're surfing it, then we have a stability that enables us to really see the whole picture. Most of the time we're we're looking at half of the picture we're looking. We have, you know, catastrophe in our mind. A lot of the time we have thoughts and emotions that are out of control and we don't see the beauty, the wonder and the goodness of our lives. So if we can start to shift our focus by being able to not be sucked in so much by our thoughts and emotions, we're actually able to enjoy life and all of its glory, as well as all of its challenges.
0: I like that analogy of surfing it. We're so used to thinking of the term surfing, like surfing the internet. And maybe that's probably too much of the problem. But I like the idea of being able to surf our thoughts and emotions, because you're right, we can't get away from them. So How then do we begin to shift away from that? How do we begin to surf it? How do we begin to manage this so that our mind doesn't control us and take us down those darker paths?
1: I think one of the first things, Dana, is that most of us are afraid of our minds. And the reason that I know this is because when I talk to most people and ask them questions around their phone use, I begin to understand that whenever they feel alone, lonely, Uh, maybe they're at a restaurant, and a friend leaves and goes to the bathroom. The first thing they're going to do is look at their phone. So we have a a deep inability that has developed really since the iPhone um, came onto the market to sit with ourselves. And if we can learn how to sit with ourselves and get to know our mind, all of a sudden things begin to change. Because if we don't know our mind, then our mind will always be out of control. So by learning how to get to know our mind and start to train and tame it is our first step. And the first skill that I have to encourage everyone to do is to have a meditation practice. And it doesn't have to be long. I know for some people they'll be like, oh, meditation. Practice. <laughs> meditation again. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do this. But I wanna tell you, meditation doesn't have to be long, okay? So I teach people in a a daily 10-minute meditation practice that's really fun and enjoyable. Doesn't have to be long to get results. But I think one of the biggest obstacles that people come up against when they hear the word meditation is they, they will often say, you know, I can't do meditation. And I'll say to them, why? And they'll say, because I can't clear my mind of thoughts. And that is just a myth. If you meet anybody and they say to you words that I've heard many times before, particularly in India, oh, I just sat and did two hours of meditation and I didn't think of anything. I want to tell you that person is telling you a big fat lie. Okay. So equally the mind has thoughts and emotions just as the ocean has waves. But what we need to learn to do is allow those thoughts and emotions to rise up like the waves do in the ocean and to settle back down again. What we do, Dana, is a thought comes up and we look at it like a piece of candy and we run down a rabbit hole with it. If we can learn through the practice of meditation that thoughts and emotions are transient, they're as solid as the clouds in the sky, Then, what we start to learn to do is allow the thought to come, observe it, and then allow it to dissolve back into the mind. And so, we do this by bringing our mind back to the present moment. So, we sit there, we have an anchor, it might be the breath or whatever. It could be something that we're looking at, it could be music, and the mind goes off and we bring it back. The mind runs off with another thought, we bring it back. And that is what the practice of meditation is. So we're actually working with our thoughts rather than trying to reject them. Our thoughts actually are the dumbbells in our practice as we build this muscle of bringing ourselves back to the present moment. So when the thought comes, we can welcome it because the realization, oh, I went off with it, let me bring myself back enables us to learn to be more and more in the present moment. So that when you're having a conversation, when you're writing an email, when you're doing whatever it is, and your mind is dancing off into all those places that is causing the stress and anxiety because of that dancing mind, you're able to bring it back into the present moment. And when you do The stress and anxiety begins to dissolve because you're not living in these two imaginary places of the past and the future. You're just here. And that's how we can enable ourselves to learn to calm the mind. And when the mind's calmer, everything starts to change.
0: Did you get introduced to meditation in in India?
1: I didn't. I got introduced to meditation in a number of places, and I struggled with it initially uh, until I found uh, a way of meditating that worked for me, which is what I teach. So Mm. I was actually introduced to meditation first in Australia, I think.
0: Okay. And as you began to practice this, you began to notice shifts within yourself then?
1: It, it was a, a pretty much a game changer within 30 days. I really? I saw I saw myself become more grounded. I saw my relationships change. I saw my comfort with myself begin to change. I saw my happiness begin to increase. And this is what I see in what in, in, in the students that I teach as well. Within 30 days, if you can have a practice for 30 days, where you do it consistently you or someone else will notice within those 30 days it's really profound and it's it's not hard you know it's not a hard thing to do you only need 10 minutes every day and you will see a change within yourself
0: and one of the the tools that you created is actually called the 10 minute mind which is used in public universities and colleges throughout New York City and universities around the world so what is the 10-minute mind? This is a meditation.
1: Yep, it's a it's a daily guided practice where I teach you how to begin this process of working with your mind. So in 10-minute increments every day, I take you through a guided practice. So something that's really important to understand, Dana, is that unfortunately we're living in a world now of experts and you have a lot of people who have maybe meditated for a very short amount of time or gone to a weekend class and are suddenly teaching meditation. If you're learning meditation, I really, really encourage you to just to make sure that you learn from someone who's qualified, someone who has uh, been studying for a long time, because there's a difference between creative visualization and meditation. Like I don't take you to a stream, you know, by a by a mountain, all right? This is about teaching you not to go to sleep. I'm teaching you to wake up. To wake up to yourself, to wake up to being in the present moment. To wake up to knowing who you are. Because if you can spend time with your mind and get to start to see, oh, this is where it goes to here are my repetitive thoughts when someone triggers me this is the emotion that rises up instantly in me then you can start to consciously begin to take control of your life because as you see those triggers that happen you're able through the practice of meditation to see that there's a gap between the stimulus and your response and the more you meditate the bigger that gap becomes and then all of those knee-jerk reactions that you have that maybe you're not so proud of, they begin to slow down. And this is how you begin to have control of your life.
0: Well that's interesting. So there there be in, it increases the gap between the stimulus and the response. So if we're in this reactionary mode, probably fight or flight a lot of the times, um, met the meditation is actually helping to put some distance between the two,
1: yeah, I mean, at the moment, I always feel like our reactions are a little bit like, you know, when someone calls us and our and our uh, phone is off and it goes to answer phone that instantly, that's how quickly we react when we're unconscious. And so by learning through meditation, you will see everything come up. You'll be, some days you'll be full of bliss and all of that. And I know that's what everyone's hoping for. (laughs) What will also happen, there'll be days where you're angry, days where you're sad, days where you are like, oh my God, get me out of this. And what happens, Dana, is in our everyday life, when those kind of emotions come up, we either act on them or we reject them. But whatever we do, we want them over as quickly as possible. And what meditation does is it teaches us just to stay. So Mm. when we're sitting and the anger arises, we're able to sit and look at the anger without the story and look at the emotion just as it is in its purest form. And then we're able to see that we can sit with that emotion without having to reject it and without having to run down a rabbit hole with it and act out in the ways that we normally do. And most people don't know, particularly in the world right now, how to stay. They have an uncomfortable emotion and they pick up their phone or they go to their device. They'll do anything to distract themselves from it. But if we can learn to stay with our difficult thoughts and emotions, we begin to recognize that after a period of time, it's usually quite short, they dissolve. And so we start to become less afraid of them. And if we become less afraid of our thoughts and emotions, we're less afraid of ourselves.
0: Mm. It makes sense. I it makes sense. It does <laughs> Is that one of the main tools that you have? Do you have other advice for finding a way to happiness? Meditation and, and, <laughs> and the way that you have described it is, you know, that's, I think that's pretty an incredible description and a new way of looking at it too for me.
1: Yes, look, I'm I'm all about strategies, so I have heaps of them. You know, lots of things that, that I do that I look at <laughs> and things that I also do on a on a daily basis. I would definitely say that um, I call meditation my superpower. I would definitely think that meditation is a. An absolute, you know, you really should be doing it, and you should look at, you know, so many of the, you know, people that we admire and look up to, people who are incredibly successful, they're all doing meditation and, you know, having incredible results with it. So it's it's a good there's a good reason why it's suddenly this ancient ancient practice has become popularized over the last you know really five or so years. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, I think one of the biggest things is is really experimenting with yourself that's what i do i will try different strategies out and see do they make a difference you know and that's everything from the food i eat to how i set my day up to how i spend my spare time you know there's endless things that can shift our happiness levels i have a course called the happiness baseline that's an eight week online course that really looks at these a series of habits over eight weeks that if we work with them we can actually see such amazing shifts that i i've got to tell you that we put thousands of people through this course and we we test them at the beginning of the course with the penn state university um happiness inventory which is the standard test of where someone's happiness level is at and we test them at the end and i have a success rate and shifting every person who's completed the course, shifting their test results from start to finish. So that is looking at your habitual habits and patterns and the way that you're showing up in the world and literally by a series of, I call them tweaks, but it's, it's not huge what we have to do over those eight weeks. We are really able to shifts some profound um, things in people. And yeah, people rave about that course. So it, it's really fun. It's like, it's fun. Like life should be fun. And we're caught in habitual ways of doing things, you know? And yeah. those things are around our relationship with technology, around our, our community, you know? One of the first things, Dana, when someone comes to me suffering from depression, one of the first things I will look at is there social connections? And I Mm. tell you, every time there's a breakdown in social connections. And that doesn't mean that someone who's introverted has to see heaps of people all the time, but there has to be a degree of interaction in real life, if possible, for most people to be able to be healthy.
0: Mm, I agree. I agree. One of the things that I heard you say um, about you love having experiences and to show you how to cope with them, things that come up and show you how you are. And I thought that was an interesting way. I mean, it feels like a tool to be able to check in with yourself. Would you agree?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that was one of the most incredible things about, you know, I lived out of a bag for 13 years traveling all over the world. And I think one of the most profound pieces of that was that, it enabled me to put myself in all sorts of situations and see, who am I? Like, who am I when I don't see another person I can speak English to for two weeks? Who am I when I'm in the most remote parts of India? You know, who am I when I'm living in a castle in Switzerland? You know, like all of those things, they can be things that are difficult, but it can also be, who am i when there's a whole bunch of people that think i'm marvelous and amazing and you know who am i you know do i do i get filled with ego and a sense of power and all of these things are really important for us to to really look at deeply to see who we are you know as a westerner as a white as a white westerner who am i and what is my difference in experience what are the things that you know, where are the ways that I get privileges in the world that other people don't due to the country I grew up in, even the passport I have opens doors for me. And to really start to see that, you know, that we're all the same and every single person deserves the exact same respect and love, but also that I need to give it to myself as well before I'm truly able to give it to other people. So I think, really getting to know ourselves on that level is, is is so powerful. So that ideally we're showing up as the kindest, most loving person in all situations that we possibly can. And I I think that's a life well lived, much more than a life of power and and wealth and fame. Mm, I agree.
0: And We've alluded to how uh, an amazing life you have lived, and you've had a lot of really cool experiences, including working with the Dalai Lama. You're a professional musician playing for crowds, up to 10,000 people a night. You've opened two European tours for Chuck Berry. You've worked with prominent spiritual teachers like Eckhart Tolle and Pema Chodron. What do you attribute to all these amazing experiences? Would you attribute it to because you got happy first, and then all these amazing, amazing things began to unfold
1: for you? That's such a great question, Dana. I can tell you the answer is not that. The answer is it was a decision. When Mm -hmm. I was 19 and I sat down and I said to myself, you know, my life is not turning out the way I want to and things aren't going so well, I asked myself, what was it that I wanted from life? And I didn't actually have a, I want a house and I want, you know, kids and I want, you know what this particular job or that there was only three words that came really strongly. I said, I want an extraordinary life and I knew deep down what an extraordinary life felt like. And I held that in my mind. I said, this is what I'm working towards is an extraordinary life. And so I'm someone that opens doors where maybe someone else wouldn't. I I'm very courageous, not because I'm braver than anybody else, but I see courage as a muscle, and I push up against that muscle to make sure it's nice and strong. And I see the world as really magical. I think that, you know, we can be very limited in our minds as to what we think could be possible, but possibility comes by being open to it and feeling that, you know, I guess that why not, you know, you knock on the door and why not? Like, let's just open it. Of course, the door might close nine times in your face, but the one time that it opens can be life-changing for you. So I'm someone who shamelessly opens doors and says yes to experiences and doesn't limit myself to a particular way of living or being in the world. I'm constantly learning and constantly working at keeping open to experience and people and learning and, yeah, just trying new things and ways of being. So I think all of these experiences have come from that ability to be wide open to life.
0: Mm, that's incredible. I love that statement, I want an extraordinary life. And I think you you were courageous to look for it and seek it out uh, because I think maybe some people might think, but i can't have that what what does that what does that mean but you made a decision that you wanted to have that and and stepped into it and looked for opportunities yeah for i mean
1: anyone can have uh, an extraordinary life if they want it there's one thing mm. that you have to do and that is you have to be you have to learn how to get comfortable with what we would term as failure so if you can get yourself into a position where you can make friends with this word failure which i don't even believe in i don't even believe in this idea of failure but most people will understand what i mean you know it's a little bit like when i go on stage i can go out and do a a, a really solid show or i can do a show where i go for it when i do a show where i go for it i have the opportunity to really have it be an extraordinary performance at the same time it could go wrong if i couldn't get comfortable with handling that it may quite not quite go the way i want it to go then everything opens up but most of us kind of live in a friend of mine calls it the warm bath you know we live in a place that's just it's just warm it's good enough it's okay and it feels safe there but If we can get courageous and say, well, I'm going to get comfortable with learning differently because all those failures are, they're not really failures. They're just, they're signposts. They say, "Mm -hmm, not this way or not that way. And if we can get comfortable with that, then failure doesn't even exist anymore. It's a little bit like a, a trampoline. You know, we might fall a little bit, but if we can be comfortable with that, we bounce back so quickly. And so- I have a lot of things in my life that don't quite go the way that I want them to, but I see those as stepping stones to kind of, uh, you know, solving a puzzle of how to actually make something work. So I never look at it like a failure. I look at it like, okay, I've learned something from this. And now how can I take that information to help me achieve whatever it is that I'm hoping to achieve? Mm.
0: Yeah, if we can get comfortable with failure. And you're right, people love the comfort zone. I mean, it's safe. and uh, But it's making me think about that, about what do you need to do? What do I need to do to step into an extraordinary life? And and uh, so that that's a great takeaway. Um, I'm curious, Monique, what have been your biggest ahas around this idea of happiness? I think my biggest aha
1: is that happiness and suffering come from my mind and looking after my mind is number one priority in my life. So what does that look like? That looks like really being thoughtful about my relationships with things that can destabilize my mental wellness. Doesn't mean that I don't engage with them. It just means that I'm really, really thoughtful about them. Things like technology, how much time I would spend on social media, how much time I would spend watching TV, or even what types of TV shows that I watch. Becoming really aware, you know, if I watch a violent film, how do I feel afterwards? Or if I watch a film that's really, or a TV show that's really disturbing, how do I feel? Who are the people in my life that, you know, I get really energized from? and? spending time with them? Who are the people that I don't? And why do I continue to spend time with them? So really looking consciously at that. But even further, Dana, to look at, I'm a big sleeper. I'm really, I've seen huge changes in my in my wellness from sleeping well. So looking at, you know, thoughtful practices around sleep and, uh, and also around food. Um, Mm. I was talking to one of my best friends the other day who was telling me we were talking about uh, why she has stopped eating wheat. And she can actually pinpoint that the consumption of wheat was creating depression in her mind. And Mm. now that she's come off it, her depression has completely cleared up. So there's a whole bunch of things where, again, we go through life unconsciously without seeing, um, the effects that things are having on us. And I think that if we can start to see ourselves almost like our own little lab, you know, the Dana lab or the Monique lab Mm -hmm. where we go, okay, you know, I might need seven hours sleep. You might need eight, but let's look at it. Like, let's start to look at how do I feel if I get seven hours sleep? How do I feel if I'm watching YouTube before I go to sleep? You know, How do I feel if I wake up at five o'clock rather than seven o'clock? Is there a difference? You know, does dairy, wheat, sugar, have uh, meat even have an effect on my body in a negative way? What if I give each of them up for a period of time? Will my brain fog clear? Will my mind feel better? Exercise, you know, there's endless ways that we can look at how we're being in the world, you know, before you start on social media, you know, write down, how am I feeling right now? Maybe I'm feeling a little bit agitated and that might be why you're on it. Okay. And now set a timer for yourself, set a timer for yourself for 20 minutes. And in 20 minutes time, when you've been on social media, more than like, you, you'll still be on it in 20 minutes. How do you feel now? Oh, now I'm feeling dissatisfied. You know, now I'm feeling a little bit depressed and down. And look, maybe look an hour later and then look at, okay, if I go for a walk in a beautiful park or in nature or wherever it is, ideally you're around a lot of nature, you know, how do I feel then and see the difference so that you can actually start to make some different choices. You might find that when you're you're needing a break at work that, The smartest thing might be to do is just to go for a quick 10 minute fast walk and you come back feeling super energized rather than looking at a news channel or sitting on social media. So experimenting with yourself is the most powerful thing to do. Like don't, don't listen to what everyone else is doing. Listen to you, like Mm. what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. Great ideas.
0: Um, I'm curious, is there anything that you wanted to say about happiness that I haven't asked you about, Monique?
1: I think more than anything that you're in charge of it, you know, Mm. that you actually have the ability to be in charge of it. And that might seem a little bit daunting. That might seem like I don't even know how to be in charge of it. But you are if you can learn to work with your mind. So anything where you're starting – yeah, to learn. There's a lot of science around happiness that's showing that there are very specific areas of looking at specific types of gratitude practices and meditation and, you know, working, looking at technology and your social connections and working with self-compassion. All of these things shift your happiness level. So seek out those teachings, like find them, find the strategies and Try it out, you know, and mm. you have the ability to change your life. And I just think that everybody deserves to be happy. And I mm. and it it causes me an incredible amount of sadness to see young people, particularly, and and all of us, but particularly young people struggling more and more with mental wellness. And I think, gosh, instead of learning all these things in school, you know, that often we don't even use imagine if we were learning these skills as, as a child you know
0: I, yeah get,
1: absolutely you know there's a story that they tell about the dalai lama when he first came to the west and he came to the west and you know tibet was a uh, is a uh politically and culturally based around tibetan buddhism and And Tibet was cut off from the rest of the world, so there was no other influences. And when the Dalai Lama escaped from the Chinese invasion and came to the West, and he was first teaching in the West, uh, he was asked a question. And the question that he was asked was, how do people in Tibet deal with low self-esteem? And the story goes that he had to get his translator to explain to him in three different ways what low self-esteem meant. He didn't even have an idea of this concept. And he thought this was so peculiar. He said, I don't get it. He's like, the first person that we learn to love in Tibet is ourselves. That kind of goes without saying, because that was what they were taught culturally. And what it made me understand when I heard the story was that, a lot of the afflictions that we suffer are things that are cultural rather than the human condition. And so the wonderful thing is, is that it then gives us the ability to be able to shift them. So there's so much hope. It's not, it's not that we're all suffering from stress, anxiety, and depression. It's a fact of life and we have to deal with it. The mind is so movable. You know, there's studies being done on people like uh, Matthew Rickard and another guy called Rimshe, who are, who have done so much, like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of meditation. And what they have found at UCLA, they did a lot of studies on them. The first study they did on Matthew Rickard, who used to be the translator for the Dalai Lama, they thought that their equipment was faulty and they reset everything because the, the, Parts of his brain that uh, showed where his happiness was was so overdeveloped in comparison to other people. That was just from meditation practice. So oh, wow. it's actually not. Not only are we able to shift our mindset, but we're actually able to shift the whole structure of our brain. And i th- I think that's something that every single person. I wish in the world was made aware of like, it's such a game changer.
0: Mm. It is. And I thank you for helping us change the game. I mean, it's, this has been a delightful conversation and eye opening, and making me, uh, I think I might have to journal after this and go, what did I take away from that, that conversation? Because, um, yeah, those are some really great insight and, and great stories as well. Um, I'll end with this. You say your mission in life is to lead people toward a lifetime of happiness. And to accomplish that, you combine teachings with powerful habit-changing exercises. And I encourage people to go and check out your website, moniqueroads.com. Is that the best place for people to find all the information if they're interested in the things that we've been talking about? Absolutely, it is, Dana. Mm. Yeah, so I encourage people to go there. And I thank you for help leading my listeners toward more happiness today through this conversation. And I really appreciate you getting up early <laughs> to uh, to have this conversation. Thank you, Monique.
1: Thank you, Dana. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: that was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course, on LinkedIn. See you next week.